This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. An 11-year-old girl is abducted in broad daylight, just meters from her front door and in full view of multiple witnesses. Her abductor, a convicted sex offender with a disturbing litany of past violent sexual offences, is brazen in his crime. He doesn't expect to be caught, and he's not working alone. Kept in deplorable conditions and forced to experience things that no child ever should, J.C. Lee Dugard survived the unthinkable. This is her story. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. Alyssa stood in the corridor of the parole office, flanked by her parents, Nancy and Philip. Her younger sisters, Angel and Starlight, stood nearby. They had been asked to attend the offices to process some paperwork relating to her father's past conviction. It was a scorching August day, and she didn't want to be in that building. An employee inquired as to who the children were and Philip said that they were his daughters. This was going to be a problem, as a condition of Philip's parole meant that he could not legally be around children, even his own. Alyssa looked to Philip and then to the parole officer, and uttered words that would change the course of the only life she had known for 18 years. She said, They are my daughters. I gave birth to them. The reality was that her name was not Alyssa, Philip and Nancy were not her parents, and her sisters were, in fact, her daughters. Hearing the man who had degraded and terrorised her for almost two decades claim her children as his own caused a monumental shift in her thinking. She could no longer live this lie. It would be the first tentative step she could take to reclaim her life. J.C. Lee Dugard was born on the 3rd of May 1980 to Terry Dugard, a single mother. Her biological father, Ken Slayton, was not involved in her life and wasn't even aware of her existence until many, many years later. Terry met carpet fitter Carl Proben in the mid-80s and married in 1987 or 88 when J.C. was seven years old. In 1989, Terry gave birth to another daughter, Shayna, with her new husband. In September 1990, the family moved from the Californian city of Arcadia to the rural town of Myers, 16 kilometres away from South Lake Tahoe. One of the reasons cited for the move was that they thought it would be a safer environment in which to bring up their children. JC was a shy, introverted girl who loved animals, her mother 
and her younger sister. She had an uneasy relationship with her stepfather Carl, who she believed didn't particularly like her. She would later say that he was overly critical of everything she did. The 10th of June 1991 was a regular Monday morning, but one that would change the course of one family's life forever. Paula Abdul's Rush Rush was the number one song in the United States. The series finale of David Lynch's television series Twin Peaks was due to air that evening. That morning, in the community of Myers in El Dorado County, California, 11-year-old J.C. Lee Dugard was preparing for school. Dressed mostly in pink, her favourite colour, she glanced in the mirror before placing a silver butterfly-shaped ring her mother had given her on her finger. She made breakfast and checked on her baby sister Shayna, who was still sleeping. JC was disappointed to realise that her mother had already left for work. The previous night, JC had specifically asked her mother Terry Proben, a typesetter at a print house, to give her a kiss goodbye before she left for work. She must have been in a hurry or forgotten. JC was disappointed. She worried that her mother may be upset with her as she had been continuously begging her for a puppy for weeks. As JC closed the door behind her, she couldn't possibly have known that it would be another 18 years, 11 weeks and 2 days before she would once again be in the same room as her mother. As she left the house, her stepfather Carl was out of view, working on a van in the garage. JC said goodbye and began walking up the hill to the bus stop, as she did every morning. She watched as a grey car pulled up beside her, temporarily cutting off her route. She stopped and looked at the driver, waiting for him to speak. He didn't. Instead, he rolled down the window and reached out towards her with something in his hand. There was a crackling sound followed by a tingling sensation before she fell to the ground in searing pain. She didn't know it, but the stranger had tased her. Tasers work by producing an electric shock that disrupts the nervous system, incapacitating the body and causing strong muscle contractions. The pain can be intense and overwhelming, more so for a child who has less body mass and therefore feels the effects with more force. JC was on her back in the dirt. A second person emerged from the car. Her hand landed on something hard in the dirt. It was solid and sticky. She could feel the ridges pressing into her palm. A pine cone. It would be the last piece of the outside world she would touch before her captivity. JC's stepfather Carl had seen the entire abduction unfold from his driveway. In a haze of shock and adrenaline, he grabbed a nearby bike and took off after the vehicle. He followed the car for as long as he could but lost sight of it. Rushing home, he called the police straight away. He described how he had seen a grey, mid-sized car carrying two people do a U-turn at the bus stop at the top of the hill before a woman bundled his stepdaughter into the vehicle. Carl wasn't the only witness. JC was abducted on a busy street in broad daylight. Lots of people saw what happened, including several of JC's classmates who had been waiting at the bus stop. 
the police were initially suspicious of Carl, despite the fact that he was an eyewitness, had been the one to report the crime and had several independent witnesses who could vouch for his version of events. After numerous interrogations and multiple polygraph tests, police finally declared Carl Proben to no longer be a suspect. He may have been cleared legally, but that iota of doubt cast a long shadow that would follow him for decades. Police questioned Ken Slayton, JC's biological father, but cleared him of involvement. This was the first time that Ken was even made aware that he had a daughter, let alone that she was missing. Police widened their net in the search for the missing 11-year-old. They set up roadblocks and began conducting door-to-door inquiries. Terry began speaking to journalists. Soon, local, national and international media began reporting on the abduction. Thousands of flyers and posters were printed and widely distributed around the country. Classmates at JC's Primary School, Meyer Elementary School, began a pink ribbon campaign soon after her disappearance, knowing that pink was her favourite colour. Ribbons were worn and displayed around her hometown in the hope that she would, one day, safely return to her family. Terry established JC's Hope, an organisation to direct and organise the many volunteers who wanted to help. They ran fundraisers and oversaw candlelit vigils. All efforts to keep JC's name in the public consciousness and let her know that she had not been forgotten by her family or community. In the weeks after her disappearance, JC's case was featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted. In October of that same year, her case was also featured on another show called Missing Reward. In January 1992, a local Californian band, Perfect Circle, released a song titled J.C. Lee. On her 12th birthday in May 1992, a tree was planted at South Lake Tahoe in her honour. By 1996, Terry and Carl had separated citing the strain of JC's abduction as one of the reasons. Despite the best efforts of police, the community and JC's family, the trail soon went cold. Back to the day of the abduction. JC's limp body was dragged into the waiting car. She was placed face down on the back seat. Her face and body were covered in a heavy blanket. It was hot under the blanket and difficult for her to breathe. She felt a weight pinning her down, as if someone was sitting on her. Terrified, disorientated and drifting in and out of consciousness, she heard her abductor speak for the very first time. He seemed delirious, elated even. He said to his accomplice, quote, I can't believe we got away with it, end quote. JC soon lost consciousness. She wasn't aware of her surroundings again until the car stopped. Still wrapped in the heavy blanket, her abductor also covered her with a coat to ensure that no one else could see what or who he was carrying. He moved her from the back seat of the car and through the front door of the property on Walnut Avenue in Antioch, California, an innocuous single-storey house owned by the man's mother 
with an extensive garden to the rear that stretched far beyond the presumed property line. This would be JC's prison for the next 18 years. In Myers, police and volunteers were furiously searching for the missing child. News bulletins on radio and television, chatter on police radios and hundreds of volunteers searching for her long into the night. But they were looking in the wrong place. Her captors had transported her approximately 240 kilometres or 150 miles from the abduction site. This next section contains brief references to child sexual abuse. If you prefer not to hear it, please skip ahead several minutes. Once inside the house, the man took JC to a bathroom and forcibly stripped her. He placed her in the shower and then got into the small enclosure with her. He was also naked. This was the first time that JC had ever seen a naked man. It was here, in the shower, that he shaved off all of her body hair and sexually assaulted her for the first time. JC was given a towel to dry off, but her clothes were not returned to her. She watched as the man burned the clothes she had been wearing. He hadn't noticed the butterfly ring. She held it tight, hidden, the only part of her life before, and a physical link to her mother. It was a treasured possession that she would diligently hide for the duration of her captivity. According to her memoir, she pled with her captor. She told him that her family didn't have much money, but would pay whatever the ransom was. This was the first time that she had spoken since she had been abducted. The man laughed in her face. She said that later he attempted to comfort her, but said that it was like a rabbit being comforted by a lion. The man led JC through the back garden to a tiny, partially soundproofed shed with blankets on the floor. He restrained her hands behind her back with handcuffs, telling her that they were fuzzy so would hurt less. They didn't. This was the first of many untruths he would try to convince her to believe. He warned her not to try to escape. He told her that he had two aggressive Doberman Pinscher dogs trained to attack. He said that they would chase her and catch her if she tried to run away. As she heard the heavy bolt fall, her heart sank. JC said that she tried not to cry because with the handcuffs, she wouldn't have been able to wipe away her tears. The circumstances that led to JC's abduction had begun long before JC was even born. Her abductor, Philip Greg Garrido, was born in Pittsburgh, California in 1951. His parents were Manuel and Patricia Garrido. Raised in Brentwood, he had one brother, Ron. His father, Manuel Garrido, described his son as a good boy, but referred to a serious motorcycle accident that Philip was involved in as a teenager as an instigator for his changed behaviour. Garrido was a regular drug user. Speaking to the San Francisco Chronicle, once his addiction grew, his brother Ron described him as becoming a fruitcake. He consistently misused illegal substances including methamphetamine, LSD 
and stimulant or hallucinogenic street drugs. At the time of JC's abduction, Garrido was a registered sex offender, subject to periodic parole inspections and ongoing drug testing. This next section details Garrido's criminal background and discusses violent sexual crimes. Please skip ahead if you prefer not to hear it. Garrido first came to the attention of the authorities in the early 1970s. According to the U.S. Parole Commission, he was twice arrested for marijuana possession and received probation. In 1972, an unnamed 14-year-old girl reported being abducted, raped and drugged by the then 21-year-old Garrido. She declined to proceed with prosecution and the charges were dropped. In 1973, Garrido eloped with his 19-year-old former classmate, Christine Murphy. Christine had heard rumours that her new husband had raped a teenager. He assured her that the girl was lying and she believed him. In a 2009 interview with the TV programme Inside Edition, Christine recalls Philip as being extremely jealous and controlling. She has since described her former husband as being a monster. Soon after the wedding, the relationship turned violent. One day, after witnessing a man flirting with his wife, Garrido stabbed her in the face with a safety pin. She says that he, quote, took a safety pin to my eyes. He tried to gouge my eyes out with it, end quote. She says that she was always looking for a way out. When she tried to leave him, he pulled up beside her in his car and threw her in the vehicle, abducting her. On the 22nd of November, 1976, Garrido stalked and abducted 25-year-old Catherine Calloway, also known as Katie, from a South Lake Tahoe car park. She had parked her car and gone to the store to pick up food for her and her boyfriend. They were due to meet up later that evening. Unbeknownst to her, Garrido had been watching her. He waited for her to return to her vehicle before approaching. He tapped on the driver's window. He explained that his car had broken down and asked for a lift. And Garrido got into her car. He gave her directions to where he claimed his broken down car was parked, but instead attacked her. Katie spoke about her ordeal to Good Morning America in 2009, stating that he, quote, slammed my head into the steering wheel, he grabbed my keys and threw them onto the floor. He handcuffed her and said, you know, I just want a piece of ass. Be good and I won't hurt you. He removed a leather strap from his ponytail and used it to secure her head to her knees. He then transferred her to the passenger seat and covered her with a coat. She was hunched over on the front seat of the car. Her head was pressed to her knees and she couldn't see where she was being taken. Garrido drove her to a secluded warehouse storage shed in Reno, Nevada and proceeded to beat and rape her repeatedly for five and a half hours. She said that the shed had been so carefully arranged with a mattress on the floor, rugs hanging from the ceiling, sex toys and pornography strewn across the floor, that it had to have been planned. This attack was premeditated. 
Katie believes that Garrido had intended to keep someone there. While this was happening, a police officer was patrolling the area and saw Katie's vehicle parked haphazardly next to the isolated storage shed. The officer could easily have brushed aside his initial instinct. He could have kept on driving. Luckily for Katie, he decided to investigate. As the officer approached the building, he noted the broken lock on the door. He knocked and waited, unsure of what he would find. After a moment, a man came to the door and opened it. Garrido was shirtless and dishevelled. Katie took the opportunity to run and alert the police officer. She had a strong intuition that this would be the only opportunity she would have to escape. She firmly believes that if she hadn't escaped when she did, her attacker would have killed her. Garrido was arrested. In January 1976, Two months after his attack on Katie, Garrido participated in a court-mandated psychiatric evaluation. In it, he freely admitted to being a peeping Tom, with strong rape urges. He told the psychiatrist that he frequently parked his car outside schools and masturbated while watching very young girls. The psychiatrist diagnosed him as being a sexual deviant and chronic drug abuser and recommended that he be diagnosed by a neurologist. That examination found nothing to suggest a neurological cause for his deviant behaviour. Garrido was sentenced to 50 years to life for the rape charges and was given a life sentence for the kidnapping charge. The fact that he abducted Katie and moved her across state lines meant that prosecutors were able to lay both state and federal charges against him. It should have been enough to keep him incarcerated and unable to reoffend for decades. Unfortunately, that would not be the case. Christine, his then wife, used this opportunity to escape her oppressive marriage. In 1977, he began serving his sentence at Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas. While imprisoned at Leavenworth, Garrido met Nancy Bocanegra, a 26-year-old nursing aide who was visiting her uncle at the prison. The two soon began a relationship and were married in October 1981 in a ceremony at the prison. In June 1988, Garrido was released from Leavenworth and transferred to Nevada State Prison. Here, he served just seven months of a five-year-to-life sentence before being released. In total, he served just 11 years for his crimes against Katie. As a condition of his release, he was required to wear a GPS-enabled electronic ankle monitor. He moved with his new wife Nancy into his mother's home on Walnut Avenue. His mother Patricia, despite being only in her mid-60s at the time, suffered from dementia and later Parkinson's disease. She spent a good deal of her time confined to her bedroom. Prison had not had a rehabilitative effect on Garrido. Patricia later said that, quote, prison can really destroy someone. But when Philip came out of jail, he didn't have a scratch on him. It didn't seem to affect him at all, end quote. Katie Garraway, Garrido's 1976 victim, was not informed of his release. 
In fact, she only discovered that her attacker had been released when he arrived at her place of work to harass her. At the time, she was working the roulette table at the Lake Tahoe Caesars Palace. I'm going to give a content warning here as I describe JC's time with the Garritos. Please be aware that there will be some brief references to child sexual abuse coming up. As always, if you prefer not to listen, please skip ahead several minutes. JC was still in the shed where her captor had left her. It was June in California and the heat was stifling. There was a single barred window in the shed covered with a towel. Most of the window was covered so only a sliver of natural light could get through during the day. At night, the room was pitch black. JC was still naked with only a towel to cover her, blankets to rest on and a bucket for a toilet. For the first week, her captor visited her every day to bring food, a single meal. She later said that she was almost glad to see him each day as at least his visits meant that she would get some food and wouldn't be alone. A couple of days after her captivity began, Garrido arrived with food and an ominous warning. This time, it would be different. This is when he raped her for the first time, still handcuffed and naked on the floor of the shed. She was 11. The sexual abuse would continue for years, Garrido was a drug addict and would go on what he called runs, drug-fueled multi-day methamphetamine binges. He would lock himself in a room with his captive and rape her repeatedly for days. After approximately two months, JC was moved to another building on the compound known as the studio. At least this room had a bed and she wouldn't have to sleep on the cold, hard floor. Garrido handcuffed JC to the bed and explained to her that she was there to help him with his problems and that by being there to satisfy his sexual urges, she was giving him an outlet and saving others. This is a false justification that many perpetrators of abuse try to convince their victims of. It's a cold manipulation tactic used to try to break the spirit and encourage victims to accept the worst kinds of abuse. It's also completely untrue. During these runs, Garrido would go on endless rants about angel demons and hearing voices. It's unclear whether he had paranoid schizophrenia. In 1976, when Garrido was 24, the court-appointed psychiatrist didn't see any signs to suggest schizophrenia during any of the sessions necessary for his assessment. In men, the onset of schizophrenia usually begins in the late teens to early 20s. It's likely that the professionals who assessed him would have picked up on signs of the condition at the time. We also have to remember that Garrido was offending long before the possibility of schizophrenia even arose. Schizophrenia also doesn't account for his premeditated crimes and sexual deviancy. Millions of people around the world have schizophrenia and they do not commit violence, nor are they sexual predators. So even if he had a schizophrenia diagnosis, this does not excuse nor explain his crimes. During the runs, Garrido forced JC to dress up, wear makeup and participate in both his delusions and her own degradation. 
he would cut pictures of young girls out of magazines and catalogues and splice them with pornographic images of adult women. He video recorded many of these so-called runs. Garrido refused to call JC by her name. Instead, he elected to call her Snoopy. He warned her that if she didn't behave, he would sell her to people far worse than him, who would keep her in a cage. He kept the stun gun visible during all of the runs. This was the same weapon that he had used when he had snatched her off the street. He warned her that he would use it again. The irony, of course, was that he already had her in a cage and there was little else that she could experience that could be worse than what she had already been through. As the years progressed, her cage would grow and expand, even though JC herself could not. It would encompass the shed and then the studio, then a warren of outdoor tents and part of the garden. Eventually, she would be permitted to spend time in the main house. Some days she could feel the sun on her cheek. Some days she could dream of being reunited with her family. Most days she had to suppress her disgust and hatred of the situation and the people who had stolen everything from her. Some may perceive that as a kind of freedom. But JC Lee Dugard was far from free. She was a prisoner. And this compound was her cell. For the first few months, Nancy Garrido had little contact with JC. After seven months of captivity, Nancy Garrido was formally introduced to JC. She brought her chocolate milk and the gift of a stuffed animal toy. She tearfully apologised to JC for the situation she found herself in. Philip would also apologise to JC at different intervals, before alternating again with threats. Like Philip, Nancy was also a drug addict. She was able to hold down a job for most of JC's captivity until 1999, when she became Patricia's full time carer. JC stated that Nancy was just as manipulative as her husband and oscillated between a seeming maternal kindness and a cruel jealousy. We can apply inference here that Nancy grew to view JC not as a child and victim, but as a competitor for her husband's sexual attention. Ironically, the district attorney who later prosecuted the case stated that he was convinced that at the time, Nancy Garrido had scouted Dugard as a prize for her husband. When Philip was sent to jail for several months for failing a drug test which was a condition of his parole, Nancy became JC's primary captor. Nancy spent time with JC, fed her and would watch horror films with her, although these were never JC's choice as they scared her. JC recalls that one day, Nancy told her that she wished that Philip had a headache that day, presumably referring to the day of the abduction, so that none of this would have happened. Nancy later told authorities that Philip was the one with all the answers. Years later, in court testimony, JC described Nancy as being both evil and twisted. 
1994, JC, now known exclusively as Alyssa, was informed by Nancy and Philip that they believed that she was pregnant. Having had little to no sex education, 13-year-old JC was unsure what this meant for her. Garrido gave her access to limited TV programs on childbirth and assured her that he had researched childbirth and knows exactly how to deliver a child. On the 18th of August 1994, aged 14, JC gave birth to her first child, a girl whom Garrido named Angel. Almost immediately after the birth, JC recalled seeing Garrido holding baby Angel up to the sky and asking God to please don't let him hurt her. He continued to rape JC. Nancy, being complicit in the abuse and attention of JC and her daughter, looked after the child while her husband assaulted JC. The rapes became less frequent, with the final rape occurring when her second child, Starlight, was conceived. I've come across source material that refers to JC's daughter as both Starlight and as Starlet. For the purpose of this episode, we're going to stick with the name Starlight. This name was far more prevalent in the research that I've done. Starlight was born in November 1997 when JC was 17. For a time, JC was allowed to raise both girls in the shed. Over the years, the warren of outbuildings and tents littering the overgrown land behind the house had grown. From the main house, the back garden appeared like any other, bordered by tall trees at the far end. It may not have been obvious at first glance, but the swathe of land behind the trees also belonged to the Garrido property. This is where JC and her children were kept. Some years later, circa 1999, Garrido erected an 8-foot tall or 2.4-meter-tall fence surrounding the compound housing his captives. After eight long years, JC was finally able to see sunlight and venture into the garden. She convinced Philip to allow her to access the internet so that she could homeschool the girls. He agreed, and she created a daily schedule along with worksheets and folders. She educated the girls between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. each day and worked extremely hard to give them as normal a childhood as possible, given the circumstances. During her entire ordeal, JC never stopped thinking about and missing her mother, Terry. In her first book, she says that she spent a lot of time during her captivity depressed. She hated both Philip and Nancy, but was unable to express this sentiment in her day-to-day life. She had been isolated from the outside world for so long that she grew to fear it. Garrido's religious fantasism continued to grow. He founded a church he called God's Desire and would preach to his family and others in public. Later, he also began a printing business, running it from the home he shared with Nancy and his captives. Philip looked after sales and recruited customers, and for a time, both Nancy and JC, now known to everyone around her as Alyssa, worked in the business. She taught herself word processing and graphic design. During the intervening years, Garrido had decided that the girls, Angel and Starlight, would refer to Nancy and Philip as their parents. 
and Alyssa would be their older sister. As was the case during the entirety of her captivity, JC had no choice in this development. This was a fallacy that continued until their eventual release. In summer 2009, JC had just turned 29 and had been missing for 18 years. On the 24th of August 2009, Garrido visited the San Francisco branch office of the FBI to hand deliver a four-page document titled Origin of Schizophrenia Revealed. In this document, he claimed to have discovered a method to prevent those with schizophrenia from becoming violent. He also claimed to be able to control sounds with the human mind. The document also discussed his ideas about religion and sexuality. According to his manifesto, he seemed to believe he was schizophrenic. As mentioned earlier, this was not independently verified by a professional. It would make more sense if Philip had actually diagnosed himself to explain away his perversions and past offences. During this visit, Garrido was accompanied by Angel and Starlight, age 15 and 11 at the time. The trio travelled to the University of California, Berkeley. Garrido visited the campus police office to apply for permission to hold a church event on campus. Lisa Campbell, the special events manager, observed that the girls were both sullen and submissive, and that Garrido seemed erratic. Skeptical of his account and concerned for the girls, Campbell took his name and asked him to make an appointment for the following day, which he did. Ali Jacobs, a campus police officer, also witnessed this conversation. She ran a background check on Garrido. They quickly discovered that Garrido was a registered sex offender and a parolee. Realising that he was violating the conditions of his parole by being in the company of minor children, Jacobs contacted his parole officer. Two parole officers arrived at Garrido's home later that day, handcuffed him and searched the property. They didn't find JC or the girls in the main house and didn't look beyond the tree line out back. On the 26th of August 2009, Garrido, Nancy, JC and the girls presented to the parole office. This is when JC spoke up against her captors and publicly claimed her daughters as her own. The Garridos were separated. JC and her daughters were taken to another room. JC, still presenting as Alyssa, admitted that she was aware that Garrido was a registered sex offender. She was reluctant to speak freely to the parole officer and maintained the false identity her kidnapper had assigned her. Parole officers, sensing something was amiss, contacted the police. JC recalls of the female officer interviewing her that she asked for my name again. Quote, I said I couldn't say it. I wasn't trying to be difficult. I hadn't said it in 18 years. End quote. She then wrote it on a piece of paper. Once her identity had been confirmed, other agencies such as the FBI that had worked on the initial case in 1991 became involved. Philip and Nancy were promptly arrested and charged. JC was soon reunited with a family that never stopped searching for her. There were numerous opportunities for authorities to discover JC, but they missed 
every one of them. According to an article by the Daily Mail, parole officers visited the Garrido's house no less than 60 times over the 18 years they held JC. Garrido was on parole for the 1976 rape and abduction of Katie Calloway. He should have been serving a 50-year sentence but had been released in 1988. Police didn't make the connection between JC's abduction and the earlier abduction of Katie Calloway as both were taken from the same area of South Lake Tahoe. Police not connecting both crimes with the same perpetrator is not unusual. While the modus operandi and abduction site were similar, the victim profiles were very different. And 15 years had elapsed between both crimes. In June 2002, one of the children injured their shoulder in or around the swimming pool on the property. The Antioch Fire Department attended the scene but didn't report that a child was in proximity of a registered sex offender to authorities or to his parole officer. In 2006, a neighbour called authorities to report that there were children living with Garrido and that there were tents on the property. A deputy sheriff questioned Garrido at his front door but didn't search the property and took the convicted sex offender at his word. The California Office of the Inspector General published a report in November 2009 identifying several lapses by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. The state of California approved a 20 million US dollar settlement for JC in July 2010. This was to compensate her for, quote, various lapses by the Corrections Department that contributed to Dugard's continued captivity, ongoing sexual assault, and the mental and or physical abuse, end quote. Within days of his arrest, Garrido participated in a telephone interview with a TV station in Sacramento, California. He stated that, in the end, this is going to be a powerful, heartwarming story. He said that his life had been straightened out. Quote, wait till you hear the story of what took place at this house. You're going to be absolutely impressed. It's a disgusting thing that took place with me at the beginning, but I turned my life around completely. End quote. Referring to the documents he claimed were filed with the FBI, he told producers that they would cause people to, quote, fall over backwards. End quote. On the children he fathered with JC, the child he abducted years earlier, he said, quote, they slept in my arms every single night since birth. I never touched them, end quote. Bizarre public statements like these did not help Garrido's case in the eyes of the public. On the 10th of June 2011, exactly 20 years to the day that she had been abducted, JC's mother, Terry Proben, read her daughter's statement in court. Dugard wrote, quote, I chose not to be here today because I refuse to waste another second of my life in your presence. I've chosen to have my mom read this for me. Philip Garrido, you are wrong. I could never say that to you before, but I have the freedom now and I'm saying you are a liar. All of your so-called theories are wrong. Everything that you have ever done to me has been wrong. And someday I hope you can see that. End quote. After reading her daughter's statement to the court, Terry read her own victim impact statement. 
recalling the day JC was taken from her. Quote, For 18 excruciating years, I endured a huge gaping hole in my heart that some evil being had put their hand into and had ripped out. For 18 agonizing years, I guarded what little I had left and lived in hell on this earth. You are the epitome of disgust and no amount of jail time or even death will cleanse your corrupt souls. You do not deserve to live or die or even exist. End quote. Philip Garrido eventually pled guilty and was convicted of one count of kidnapping and 13 counts of sexual assault. He waived the right of appeal. He was sentenced to 431 years to life. Nancy pled guilty to one count of kidnapping and one count of rape by force. She also waived the right of appeal and received the maximum allowable sentence. She was sentenced to 36 years imprisonment. Both will be eligible for parole in 2034. JC and her children spent many weeks and months reconnecting with her mother Terry and sister Shana. They engaged in extensive therapy to process all that they had experienced. They worked with Rebecca Bailey, a family reunification therapist, and utilized animal therapy, particularly horse therapy, to learn to trust each other and empower themselves. Speaking to Diane Sawyer, Bailey said, quote, the impact on one victim has a ripple effect throughout the whole system, end quote. JC and Terry continue to share a close relationship. Angel and Starlight, both now adults, maintain a private existence away from the glare of the media. They attended public school and worked with their mother to re-enter society on their own terms. JC has written two books, A Stolen Life, A Memoir, and Freedom, My Book of Firsts. In the years since her rescue, JC established the JC Foundation along with her mother. The letters stand for Just Ask Yourself to Care. It's a non-profit organization that runs animal therapy and healing programs for individuals and families who have experienced major trauma. They also offer workshops for law enforcement officers to have greater emotional awareness, specifically when working on cases of abduction. JC and Terry are both on the Foundation's Board of Directors. In 2016, just before her second book was published, JC issued the following statement, quote, There is life after something tragic happens. Life doesn't have to end if you don't want it to. It's all in how you look at it. Somehow, I believe that we each hold the key to our own happiness and you have to grab it wherever you can in whatever form it might take. End quote. This podcast was written, researched, produced, and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. You can email the show at propensitypod at gmail.com. Follow us on social media, at PropensityPod on Instagram and at PropensityPod on TikTok. Please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. It really helps to let people know about the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.